0: Hello to all you lovely listeners, and welcome back to Season 4 of Therapy Works. I'm your host, Judah Samuel, a best-selling author, psychotherapist, and now self-proclaimed podcaster. And these are my daughters.
1: Hi, I'm Emily.
0: And I'm Sophie. Each week, we invite you into our therapy room, where we'll be joined by a variety of voices, some well-known and some unknown. Together, we'll be navigating some of life's biggest challenges.
1: That's right. We'll be diving deep into conversations about struggles people have faced or are still facing. We believe that sharing these stories is not just cathartic, but can also be profoundly healing.
2: Absolutely. As fellow psychotherapists, we're here to help you, our wonderful listeners, expand your understanding
0: of therapy and its transformative power. After each conversation, Emily, Sophie and I will reflect on what we've learned and how these insights can be applied to your own lives.
1: It's our mission to prove that meaningful conversations, even those that contain difficult emotions, can be a source of growth, resilience
2: and hope. Whether you're a long-time listener or just joining us for the first time, we're thrilled to have you with us on this journey. We hope that each episode leaves you with
0: something valuable to carry into your own life. And without further ado, let's dive straight into this week's episode and start unpacking life's challenges together. So, Azariah Hope, I am thrilled to have you on our podcast. And maybe you can introduce yourself and kind of let our listeners know how you got to be where you are with the relearning and rewiring um, foundation. Um, So I consider myself a lived experience consultant, uh,
3: mother of four, but parenting two. And throughout the process of becoming a parent, I had to take some losses along the way. And through the help of the support network that I'd started to build around me after that loss, I was able to access the therapies which enabled me to process the traumas of the loss, the traumas before that loss, and actually be given an experience of a reparenting as well as a rewiring process of my own ways of thinking,
0: the way I viewed life, and everything that came along with that. The big question I ask everyone who comes on to my podcast is, tell me about a challenge you're facing and have had to overcome. And I guess you said you, the, the big thing is that you're the mother of four and parenting too. Do you want us to kind of take us back and let us know how that happened and then the process that you've come on? living with that in a way that feels less traumatic, I guess. Not less traumatic. I don't know. What's the word? Um, I think more resilient
3: to that trauma, because it's still traumatic. It's still traumatic, but you build a a thicker skin in terms of managing what that experience looks like, even after the fact, because those facts don't change. But it started when I had my first son, I was only 15. Um, I was a child in care myself and spent many years before that kind of bouncing in and out of care or bouncing from home to home or moving a lot, even with my own birth family. When you hear that, it's always a shock. But when I found out I was pregnant, I didn't quite understand what everybody's shock was because actually I had been a mother before I'd had my own children. I was a young carer, so I couldn't understand why everybody was so worried or why everybody was shocked that a fifteen year old is actually about to have a baby of her own. And I thought I understood because, because I Because you're been, normal. Right. That's it. That was my normal. But it's not
0: the normal. No. I mean maybe there isn't a normal. I mean, A, it's illegal to have sex before the age of sixteen, so some law was broken. Absolutely. But what you're saying in the world and the environment that you were brought up in, for you, it was your normal in the sense that you had been a carer to your siblings, was it?
3: Yeah. And at times to my biological mother, um, when her mental health wasn't in a good place or her physical health wasn't in a good place, I then had to take on a role of caring for her as well as my younger
0: siblings during different points of my childhood. Tell us a little bit about your mum and dad and then we'll go to the pregnancy and what happened.
3: Um, So I was born in Birmingham and I basically didn't have any relationship with my father. I had heard bits and pieces as I grew up um, and my home life with my mum was, I know it wouldn't have been what she wanted for us, but it was chaotic. There was exposure to abuse and there was exposure to violence and I guess everything that you would not expect somebody to experience and so when it came to violence and illegal behavior as we'd like to call it I didn't feel that sense of well maybe I shouldn't do that or maybe these things shouldn't be happening or I shouldn't be seeing these things that was my normal and I daren't question anything else at that point because I knew having a conversation with my own mum when I could about what I had seen and what I had experienced. That was a hard conversation for her to have. And in her eyes, and what I understand is that she may not have wanted that for us, but her experiences as a child herself were catastrophic, were chaotic, were fueled with violence on a level that was far more extreme than what my experience was, and therefore it's nowhere near the same. And so it had always been very much a, whether we're physically moving or fleeing violence or fleeing other forms of criminal activity, that was kind of the theme throughout my childhood.
0: I mean, and as you're talking, I hear the words sort of fleeing violence, her catastrophic childhood, your normalised exposure to abuse and violence and every kind of extreme behaviour. You're saying it almost like you're looking at somebody else. Like, this is a story that you're telling. I can't feel what you're feeling. Does it feel very distant to you now? Um, I think I've had to create um, a detachment from
3: the facts because I know that, particularly during times where I've had to pull back these layers in therapy or tell this story a million times to social workers, To foster carers or to anybody else who was listening, it was difficult—not just difficult. It almost felt like it. It kind of tore me apart from the inside, and I couldn't recover from telling that story. I was left with such a feeling of helplessness and darkness that, at times, that very much overtook me. And the way I dealt with that was so self-destructive that, in itself, has taken a long time to recover from that. And so now it's quite easy to know that that's my story, but tell it as a matter of fact, more so than something that's fueled with so much emotion that I can no longer function outside of telling that story.
0: I mean, I understand that in the sense that if you let yourself fully be open to what that 15-year-old, 10-year-old, 8-year-old, 5-year-old went through, you'd be re-traumatizing yourself. So in some way, you've had to find a way of stepping out of that experience so you can be in the body of the woman you are now. But of course, that experience is part of your story and influenced you. I mean, what is so interesting is the transgenerational patterns Mm -hmm. so that your mum had a catastrophic childhood. You then got pregnant at 15. And do you want to tell us what happened to to that child and then the next child?
3: Um, So I um, had my son in care, and whilst I was classed as a looked-after child, at that point there weren't any concerns around the way I cared for him because on a very surface level, I knew how to cook, I knew how to clean, I knew how to... I was still going to school with the help of my foster carer and things were looking really positive. And it was a space that actually I could still have my mother in the picture, but at a distance so that I could be me and be a mum and figure out who I am outside of that family dynamic. And knowing that she was so triggering for me at times because of her own struggles, there was space for our relationship to develop at that point. Um, whilst I, mm. you know, focus on what my life is going to look like now, aside from being a daughter and a young carer and whatever other expectations came with that. Um, and it was only until I had my daughter. So I'd got back with my son's father after placement broke down. I returned home, home situation then broke down and I was placed in temporary accommodation at 16 with a one year old. And when my son's father had come out of prison, my almost default reaction was that this was somebody I needed to be with now because I have a child with him and we have this history and our paths were so similar on so many levels that it was almost like it felt we was meant to be in some really naive and childlike fantasy way. And so when he came out of prison, things went so quickly. It went from him not living with me to living with me to moving into a permanent home and getting pregnant very quickly again with my second. And our relationship wasn't perfect by any means. Even at that point, I had become almost emotionally detached from connecting with anybody for that matter, even with my own son in an emotional way, I could meet all the other needs and to the outside world, I'm doing a great job, but connecting with him emotionally and connecting with my partner emotionally wasn't easy. And also this protective shell that I would carry when he would raise his voice or he would grab me because we're having an argument would automatically cause a fiery and volatile response. And so I'm now reacting to that. And then when I got pregnant, I felt as though I tried to dumb that side of me down, dim it down a bit and try and find a way to make this relationship work. We're now engaged. It's our second baby. And I now have to make this work. I have to. And in fact, what turned into probably a really dysfunctional and just toxic relationship, then it became really violent. It became controlling and the transition from that, I didn't even really see it coming. But um, by the time I'd had my daughter, we had split. I had moved away again. And when then I'd come back and I didn't address the issues of what my child my had experienced at that point. And actually what my unborn child yeah. would have also been experiencing because everything that I'm feeling and experiencing, she is too. And I couldn't understand mm. that, which was, I think one of the hardest bits to kind of wrap my head around actually how my traumas and the things that I was going through before she was even born has already imprinted on her. And by the time she was nine months old, they were taken from me because of neglect and then identified that I had some complex mental health issues.
0: Oh, Azariah, I mean, there's so much in what you said. There's so many things going up in my brain. One of them is how familiarity, even familiarity of suffering and violence is what we're drawn to. We're like drawn to like, I know this because it's familiar in some bizarre way it feels safe.
3: Absolutely. And so
0: you're, you know, the, the father of your children, you knew him because you'd seen versions of him all through your life. So he felt like the right person. Absolutely. But also, you talked about your daughter being imprinted, like you were imprinted, and you didn't know what you didn't know. You couldn't know what you didn't know. You couldn't have named that you were traumatized or that you were in an abusive relationship or that you had an abusive, dysfunctional childhood. You couldn't have used those words. All you could do was function, and it sounded like you functioned well, like you could cook and clean and over-parentify, like you weren't a child. You were an adult in a child's body. Mm -hmm. But of course, psychologically, your development got arrested when you first were traumatized. So maybe developmentally, you were at different ages, I don't know, five and eight and 10 that would be ignited and activated by your partner or by life as it happened to you. And so it's like, you had nothing in you to protect you and your children. And yet somehow, what I guess is that society would think there was something wrong with you. It feels to me like you didn't have a chance when you were at that age. Oh,
3: absolutely. And I think it was important to also understand that there were times when even though dysfunction and chaos and violence was normal, I think under all of that, growing up, there were times when I thought this isn't the life that I want. I don't feel happy was the words I would remember thinking to myself at six and seven and 10 and thinking, I don't want to be in this family. I don't feel like I belong here. And there were many a times when I spoke up about the things that I saw and the things that I was experiencing. And unfortunately, it was something that was kind of brushed to the side until... I'm now 18 with two children in a home that is no longer fit for them. And I can't even meet their practical needs at this point. And now everybody wants to know, why did it get this bad? Are you just a bad mum or do you just not want to prioritise your children? And at that point, it was very easy for me to say, I know I failed my children. I know that and I want to fix it. I just don't know how. So tell me what I need to do to fix it. There's no fixing it. There was a lot of things that I had to own um, as a victim, but also as a perpetrator in many points of my life, acknowledge the impact and really understand what they had been through so that I could now help them understand that. But I had to start with self and that meant them not being there and going, me having to go through years of therapy and, Trying to navigate this first, meaning that legally time scales, there wasn't enough time. And so they ended up being adopted. But it was so complex. There were so many layers and there are different things that I'm learning along the way. It's just a lot less painful to tell that story and to learn those things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I really see your heart. And the love that you feel for those children, and actually the love you feel for your mum and your family, and that like your mum wanted to be the best mum she could be, you wanted to be the best mum you could be. Love is at the heart of it, but when you're traumatised, as you all were, love is what you most need, but love is what is most difficult to access, because your capacity to give and receive love is entirely switched off when you're in trauma. I can hear so many layers. You know, you want to be able to tell a neat story of fixing it, like you can get yourself better and be the mom you wanted to be or fix your kids. But it, as human beings, we can't be fixed because the injury is there. So we ha- what you're t- telling me is that you had to kind of go inwards and deal with a lot of the internal Um, legacy of all the things, the kind of mess and the toxicity and the fire alarm that was blaring in your brain (laughs) before you could begin to build a relationship with your kids. But by then, the services and the institutions, I guess, or the, the admin of it in some ways took over. Your internal psychological process couldn't match the marching of their needs for secure parenting. And so they were adopted.
3: Yeah. And as I tend to, um, and I've noticed it, and I don't tend to scrutinize it so much, I just observe. But during that process, I got pregnant very quickly with my third to another man who was emotionally unavailable and probably didn't see a future with me. And I didn't really see a future either. There was no thinking about longevity. It was just another impulsive action that led to a pregnancy of another baby. And now not only am I having to try and figure out my internal battle and process the things that are going on and now try and unlearn some of the behaviors and the mindsets that I have learned, I've now got to start a whole new legal process with an unborn baby, but now figure out how I can do this How can I not just parent this baby, but how can I keep this baby safe now? Can I keep this baby? And if I want to keep this baby, how am I going to do things differently? Which was very bittersweet. I was grieving for children that were clearly alive and well physically and now having another baby and thinking, what if I can't do it? Or what if I have to lose another baby and grieve a third? So it... Yeah, I like to do things the most complex ways, as you could probably tell. But we got there and I couldn't be more grateful for that. But yeah, it wasn't easy. It wasn't an easy process.
0: No, it sounds incredibly difficult. The kind of reflex would be that two of your children have been taken away and were adopted. So your instinct is to fill the space with another child. But you said it was impulsive And also then it brought up a push and pull of how the hell am I going to keep this child when I'm still struggling? Mm
3: -hmm.
0: What do you think having a baby represents for you? Because, I mean, you could have had birth control. So it was impulsive, but you could have used the pill or birth control. So I wonder what sense do you make of having babies for you?
3: I think at that point, again, it's almost a tradition my mum had eight children of her own, three removed and four at home. Eight children. Your
0: mum had eight children.
3: Eight children. And it was so And funny. she was a
0: child herself psychologically.
3: Absolutely. I mean, she wasn't
0: a grown-up adult. No,
3: absolutely not. And again, three removed, four more in her care. And then before that, my grandparents had eight children also. And so I think subconsciously, there was a part of me that thought this is almost written for me to have more children. Um, Whilst it's complex, and there was a huge chance that because of how soon I got pregnant, that baby was supposed to be taken from me. That baby was supposed to go up for adoption because I don't meet the needs of the child at that point, or I haven't addressed these issues first before trying to parent another child. And it didn't help that there were physical complications. I mean, I'd lost so much weight. I didn't even have periods. And I was told that I was probably temporarily infertile. And all I needed to do was start to eat more and get my weight back up. And then everything should resume as normal. But because I was so severely underweight, that was the consequence. And I was completely detached from hearing these things or when they're saying you're underweight, you're not eating enough. And I'm like, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I'm just hearing it. I'm not processing the fact that actually I may not be using the same tools as I did to self-harm, but this is another form of self-harm in a really subconscious way. So finding out that I was pregnant at the time that I did, it was like, okay, Is it a defying the odds moment? Is this meant to happen? Is this the path I'm really meant to be going down? But then there was also this petrifying feeling of knowing that I'm the fourth child of eight children and knowing what my eldest siblings experienced when I finally got to speak to them and seeing the impacts that my own mother's parenting had had on me and her experiences and actually watching from the outside as my younger siblings are battling their own demons. It was overwhelming beyond belief to think, should I do this or should I not? But also this little critic voice in my head that had been there for so long to say, you can't have a termination because that's not what we believe. We were never taught to do those things. And a real scrutiny to myself and actually to other people who had not understanding that actually, scientifically, there are different ways of viewing life and at what point life exists. But also, them actually making decisions because they know they're not in a position to parent or they know they can't give a child what they need, but also acknowledging that that's a loss for them in some ways that they'd have to deal with. And I I wasn't sure that I could deal with that. I thought that would be more damaging than to go through with the pregnancy and raise this baby if possible.
0: Yeah. I mean, I can imagine the sense of overwhelm and what I, keep hearing is the influence of the past on you, like your fourth of eight grandchildren, your fourth of eight children. (laughs) And so that there's all the kind of beliefs and cultural norms are what influenced and shaped you. And part of that was not to have terminations. So if you had an eating disorder that you were so thin, what were the other behaviors that you were using that social services felt put your children at risk were were you did you were you taking drugs were you self-harming what was um
3: there was a lot of self-harm um and I was suffering from panic attacks at the time um so I self-harm was something that had been very much present since I was possibly about 11 or 12 years old what was the self-harm it would be cutting it would be burning gosh and really I wouldn't even say it was impulsive because the thought process was but I was always prepared to if I needed to and that was the part that I think that stuck out for me because whilst they kept saying she's really impulsive and she's really reckless and she puts herself in dangerous positions there was a part of me that could say well it wasn't that impulsive because I'd had a kit my whole life and I might change the kit if the kit was found but it's not really that impulsive it was premeditated in some respects it may not have been about suicidal thoughts but it was more about containing painful emotions that I couldn't manage And using physical pain as a way to mask that and distract. And that was difficult. Um, But alongside of that, there were things like overdosing. Overdosing was something, again, that would happen often throughout my childhood. And even at the time that I lost my children, I was back into that cycle of using whatever it took at that point to mask this pain that I was feeling. I felt as though I couldn't just give these destructive behaviors up. You know, there was a side of it when we're talking about parenting. I think at that point, I'd had a really good social worker who pulled my records from the minute I was born until that very present day. And she said, Wow, this is the first social worker in many years that ever did that. And the first social worker in my children's case that said, I actually want to understand, I I need to understand so that I can help. And she heard oh, me wow. and she understood it. Makes and me cry. <laughs> it didn't happen before. Yeah. There was no one who ever looked out for me or took the time to understand how I got here. It was just, yes, you've experienced some kind of violence in your life and that's made you the person that you are today, but that's not an excuse. And I was always scrutinized for the person I'd become. And she was the first person who made me feel like a human being and really understood actually there oh, were many times great. I could have been saved and those children could have been saved. Mm. And whilst I have my part to play, everybody else does too. We all have a responsibility here. It really takes a village.
0: Yes. It really takes a village. I feel so moved by that, that before you'd been labelled and objectified, like that, it was acknowledged your past, but somehow it was only down to you as an individual mm-hmm. to pull yourself up and get yourself out of drug addiction and self-harming and all the behaviors that you were using to anesthetize the screaming inside of you that was really agony that you'd do anything to stop it. What it puts in mind for me is this idea, I don't know if you know of um, Richard Schwartz's work, Internal Family Systems, where you have parts and there are different parts of you. And it sounds like you have wise parts that knew that you weren't in a healthy childhood. You had hopeful parts that wanted to be a version of yourself that you could picture. Mm-hmm. And then you had parts, what he calls controllers and managers and firefighters who are there to protect you against the pain. They're doing the first thing to keep you away from the agony, but actually they then become terrible habits. They override wise part or the gentle more compassionate voices because they're on controlling mode but the idea that you finally had someone who wanted to form an understanding relationship with you not treat you as an object
3: it was a turning point because at that point whilst I knew I needed to work with professionals in some respects these professionals were perpetrators in my story and what you're asking me to do in if it was the father of my children or my mother we're talking about, you would be told to stay away from them. They're triggers. They're a risk. These people had also inflicted emotional abuse on me, whether it was coercive behaviour, when they told me things were going to happen and they never happened, just to get a job done. Or the times that I wasn't heard or I was pushed into situations like returning to a mother who was volatile. And that wasn't because she wanted to be. It's taken a long time to get there for that, but you pushed me back into the belly of the beast, because that was the easiest thing to do. So you've become a perpetrator in my story, and now I'm having to work with you to fight for my
0: children. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Autumn is a time associated with transition. For some, it signals the end of the summer and the return to regular routines, while for others it represents new beginnings and a renewed sense of purpose. While some of you might embrace this, many might become overwhelmed with the new pressures you've put on yourself. So if you're one of those people struggling to fall asleep, or your brain won't stop worrying, it turns out that one great way to stop those racing thoughts is to talk them through. And there's no better place than therapy to do just that. Talking to a therapist will help you to get out of your negative thought cycles, give your brain a break, and allow you to find some mental peace. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, it's definitely worth giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com Slash therapy works. So the people who were meant to help you were also perpetrators of your story because they weren't fully alongside you in understanding you. They were pushing you around and controlling you in the same way as the other bad actors in your life.
3: Yep, that exactly. But because she was able to say, I see you, I've read the records, I've met your Mm. mother. I've met your partner and I see these things that you've had to experience. I see what your siblings are experiencing right now. And I want to see something happen that's different. I want to see you. We've got the assessments that say you're not a lost cause, so we've got to do something to fix it. And it took a fight. It took a, a good long fight, but because she saw me and she was honest and she was consistent and she was transparent, That was the opening for me to say, actually, yes, those are parts of my story with these professionals that weren't helpful for me, that were damaging for me, but they're not all bad Mm. And, and the system may have its flaws, but how do we rectify that if we sit here and scrutinize them? Why don't we become part of the change, work together, figure it out. And once I'd managed to come out the other end of all of it, had my fourth daughter, both of my children don't have local authority involvement now, um, and moved away. And through that process, I met my foster parents who have been honestly angels. If I had said to myself at a younger age, what I wanted my parents to be, I was giving them the minute I had my son. And it almost felt surreal. And they're very much a part of my world. But all of that pushed me into a direction where I was able to take my experiences. And instead of bashing a social worker or bashing a teacher or even bashing my mom and saying, well, you're the bad guy in my story, Mm. having the empathy to say you're troubled too, to family members or whoever was in my story and to professionals thinking, I understand it's not as easy as that, but I don't want this to keep happening. I have siblings and I have children now, and there are millions of children that will need these services. And I want I want to see something change. I don't want there to be a divide anymore.
0: I want to go to that. I just want to hold on to the power of how one woman, the social worker, what was her name?
3: Her name was Jackie. Jackie. I'll never forget her. <laughs>
0: How Jackie, the way she believed in you, she saw you, where you came from, she wanted something different for you from her heart, not from a tick box routine, but really emotionally wanted to create a different future for you with you. That was the turning point. How did that change you? What did you go through then to become who you are now, which is the mother of two children who are no longer on the risk register? Um,
3: It took about two years of therapy, um, which, of course, was risky because my son remained in my care. So when my son was born, we was placed with foster parents who are my mum and dad now. And we stayed with them for a year. I completed therapy We finally transitioned into independent living. And I don't want to take away that whilst this sounds all pretty, going through that therapy was the ugliest journey that I have (laughs) ever been on. Because by that point, I had managed to pick myself up and make sure I looked presentable. I got back to being the practical mother. I can look good. I can make sure my child looks good and I can show you that everything is fine. But when I walked in there, it took about six months for them to really break down that barrier. And I remember that day, it's etched in my brain, the day when they actually broke that barrier. And I turned into, instead of a 20-year-old young woman, I had resorted back to a five-year-old version of myself Mm. who completely broke. And it took hours for me to really piece myself back together after that because they had knocked all the layers back and they've taken this perfect picture away and they've taken away the victim mentality and it was these are the things that you've done but this is why you've done them we're going to acknowledge that this is what's happened to you but that behavior wasn't acceptable either and those behaviors had consequences now we're reprocessing all of that and in the end, I didn't want to leave. At first, there were many times I didn't want to be there. And on my last day, I was like, I don't I don't want to leave. I'm not ready. I'm scared I'm going to leave and something <laughs> awful is going to happen. But I managed to transition away. And I've still kept in contact with a couple of therapists, which has been helpful. Um, just letting them know of all the milestones that I've hit along the way. Yes. Um, so we, through the ugly, we found beauty, which was something I never, ever thought I'd get.
0: Oh, I mean, obviously, as a therapist, me hearing that therapy can really transform your life. But also the reality for people listening is that therapy is painful. You have to face the dark sides and the aspects of yourself that you have used all these defenses against facing in order to change and in order to grow.
3: Well, that's it.
0: The thing that sounds transformative is the love of others, like these therapists It's a proper relationship, isn't it? It's not just like acting out, like no, but forming real close relationships with a therapist that you hated and didn't want to be with and then in the end didn't want to leave and then have them in your life and so that you can show them how you've changed. How old are you now, Ezra?
3: So I'm 26 now. I'll be 27 this year. And I sometimes forget that I'm only 26. It is bizarre to me that
0: you're so young whilst
3: life it has been crazy, my life has been full. And whilst there have been so many <laughs> like times five
0: lives already. <laughs> yeah.
3: I think if I was a cat, we're running out now. So we've got to calm it down. <laughs> <laughs> I found something normal. Like life is boring now. And I never thought I'd say how happy it is just to get up, do the school run, get some work done, get the house done. And don't get me wrong, I still have to fight with my little critic Many days and say, We're not doing that today. Or when my anxiety flares up, or something's triggered me, and I call my mum and I'll be like, This is so bad. This is horrible. But these are the things that I never had before the stability, the support, and the love from others in a way that was healthy, in a way that wasn't too intrusive, and in a way that I could now replicate those behaviors that were now shown to me which meant that I can now pour those behaviours into my children. And that was the most important part. Therapy is great. And my um, therapist would say to me, you know, you've not done the work if you don't leave here exhausted. And I will never forget that. (laughs) So now when I feel tired after a session, I'm like, that was a good session. That was a good one. It felt (laughs) crap, but it was a great one. (laughs) But there was an (laughs) important part of the journey that involved being reparented and being held by my support network that was so crucial. You can't just throw somebody into therapy and hope that they're going to come out the other end without a safety net. There were so many layers to it. And actually, there are so many people who need that and may not get that. And to me, that is awful. It's sad. And I want to see that happen for people. But it's also about whether they can manage it. That's the thing. You have to want it as well. You can't just have it. You have to want that.
0: You have to want it. And I couldn't agree more that therapy isn't like in a box on its own, but it lives in the context of your life and where you go home to from the therapy sessions. And it sounds like your foster parents created a place where you could, as you say, be reparented, where they modeled for you what consistent, predictable, in some ways, boring, loving is. Because your childhood was by no means boring. (laughs) Definitely
3: not. There was always something to the point when it was quiet, I was scared. It was, why is everything so quiet? Why is there not a drama? I had this overwhelming feeling all the time of being prepared to run. And even as an adult, Even now, and it's so weird that I don't have any connections with my birth family at the minute or my ex-partner, and I'm safe. Physically, I'm safe. But I have an emergency bag packed in my room just in case Thank I have you. to. And in my son's room, he's got one too, because I've spent so long running physically and mentally that there is still a part of me that I'm having to talk to every day and say, no, you are safe. You're, you are you are okay safe. now. Like We, we are fine yeah. and if we're not. I now have people that are a phone call away that can help me. I'm not on my own and I can talk about those things. So it's, yeah. it's still a bittersweet place to be and there are still things I'm having to navigate day to day.
0: I feel so much respect for you and warmth towards you hearing your story and the courage and what you've come through. And thank God for those people in your life that have helped you change your life. But also, we don't get over stuff. (laughs) This idea that you can switch from everything bad to everything good, you know, just fix yourself. Mm -hmm. You have your running away case, you have the fire alarm that goes off in your head, you have the legacies and the wounds of your past, and you have learned to quieten them and self-soothe and tell yourself I'm safe. I've got people that love me. I have people who can take care of me. Mm -hmm. But you have to continually remind yourself because your first imprint, as you talked about with your mum and your baby, is fear and danger and threat. And any moment, something terrible is going to happen. So much so that silence terrifies me because it means something is going to go off. Mm -hmm. So what are the things? So people listening who have echo themselves they may have very different stories but parts of your story echo in them what have you learned that you would like them to know
3: I think what I'd love for them to know and it's a big thing that I always echo when I'm talking to people who have got similar experiences is healing involves accountability in some respects no yeah know that it's not black and white know that it's not a this person's all bad or I'm all bad or I'm just a victim because when you put labels on things which everybody does I mean sometimes you've got to do it to know how to work with something but take away the labels reflect look at your own experiences and take accountability for what is yours but know when it's not yours Mm. and know that if you do get on this journey of having to process your own traumas and having to unpack everything and figure it all out trauma isn't just these big things that we're talking about now traumas can be really small ones a uh, moving house and mm-hmm. a best friend is no longer in the picture or the loss of your cat
0: small t traumas mm-hmm. know
3: that they are mm-hmm. traumas that you might have to deal with too and that dealing with them involves you being willing and that with that work And hopefully they all get the right support. It's not always the case, but I hope for it. That they're able to take that and know that no matter how hard it feels, this is where they're meant to be. When it feels hard, that's exactly where you're meant to be. So if they can go away with anything, take Mm -hmm. that accountability and do the work. It won't be a happy ending, but what it will give you is a sense of some kind of peace. If I'd left with just peace, I would have been happy. But I've been spoilt. I think,
0: I must say. (laughs) I have been So you did feel the pain and you stayed with the hard work and you let it change. You took accountability in the boundary of what was yours and what was theirs. Mm -hmm. You've processed it. You've built a community of people around you that love you. You've got your two kids. And so where are you at now? How are you using your experience to help others? Um, Well, as a mum,
3: I... um one of the lucky ones. So my children who are adopted are still very much a part of my world. I I get to see them and hug them. How are they? How
0: are they? They
3: are humongous. They left me as these tiny people and now they've got their own opinions. They've got their own feelings and they are so vocal. And I love that for them. And there are times we have to have hard conversations because more so with my son, he remembers things. He left me much older than my daughter did. And so we have a lot of unpacking to do at times. And there are times when he needs to hear me say a million times, I see you and I know what you experienced. And I'm sorry that I didn't do more. But as many times as you need to hear that I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. For My daughter, she doesn't call me mum and that's fine. It was really hard to wrap my head around that bit. But she's still part of my world. And yeah, she is just a mini version of me, fiery, enthusiastic. (laughs) I mean, I'm in awe and I'm so grateful to the adopters that took them and have helped raise them to be these well-rounded humans because they are, they're amazing.
0: So the adopters have become your family too?
3: Oh yeah. It's like one big blended family. They've seen my other children grow. They've managed to help build a relationship between my eldest children and my youngest. And so they've been able to help keep that them together. You. And we've created so many memories that no matter what happens in the future, I have got imprinted and so have my kids, which is all I could have asked for. I Good mean, for you, Ezra. You've changed
0: your family's story. Completely. you changed it, haven't you? You've their future is very, very different from yours. Yeah.
3: We've broken them generational yeah. curses and I think, if anything, if that's all I can achieve in this life, that's a, that's a real good thing to achieve, I must say.
0: <laughs> it's a real um, good thing to achieve. My goodness. My definitely. goodness. I mean, I feel very proud of you. You must be so <laughs> proud of yourself.
3: Definitely. But with proud of being proud of myself, there also comes the survivor's guilt because my siblings aren't where I am going to be and they're going to have to go through a whole different journey and I hope that they can get what I got and as soon as possible Um, but that led me into doing the job that I now do working with different professionals because it was yes I want to help the world but my siblings I can't have the relationship I want with them and I can't be their saviour. If I can get my experience and my wisdom if you like to different professionals There may be more people that we can save. The support that they need can be offered to them and they can be given the toolbox that I've been given, which may change the narrative for a lot of people, but including them. I still think about them so often um, and they are my driving force, regardless of anything. They and my children are my driving force to rewire the system. It's all good and well rewiring our mind, but I want to rewire the system. We need to get rid of this us versus them mentality. And as I said before, it takes a village to raise a child. This village involves our community, our social workers, our teachers, our key workers, other parents. And we need to blend that now. The layers need to disappear and we need to be seen as one in order to change that.
0: You're as a consultant, you will work with social workers or key workers or teachers or anyone who works with children in need, I guess.
3: Children in need, or just children generally, so that they can understand. I think they need to be able to understand the impacts of coercive and controlling parenting and emotional abuse, which has also been undermined so much, especially in my own story. But actually, there are points that could have been picked up a lot sooner and when I tell my story the way I do professionals have been able to say I see it actually and if I can get at least one professional to look at something that I'm saying and say no that makes sense and take that back into work with them I've done my job I've done what I think I'm here to do I think I'm here to do this and that
0: is rewarding completely I'm in awe Yeah, that's so rewarding. And you're wanting to multiply Jackie so that people have her insight and empathy and compassion in order to be able to change the world of all the people they come in touch with in the way that she changed. Absolutely.
3: So yeah, that's the goal.
0: (laughs) Well, that's an amazing story, Azariah. I am um, in awe of you and... So grateful to you for telling me and our listeners your story. We use words like inspirational, but what I really feel is that you faced so much and felt so much pain, but also faced the pain. And you have changed. You've changed your own story. You've changed your children's story. And you want to change the story of both your siblings, and they really are your motivator, but also of all of us in our community that we can have a better understanding of each other and connect as human beings
3: Absolutely. rather than as
0: is it objects do you think if we connect as human beings rather than what um i think i would
3: say objects i think i'd agree with that because it's almost very disconnected when i think about how i connect with my kids or my friends or how the connection is between professionals and families or or just us and strangers, there's a disconnect. And so you're right. It's, it feels very much like unless you are connected to that person, it's very much a thing and not a person and not a being. And we are, we, we're all humans with all these a million thoughts and feelings. And actually there's so much power in
0: that. So much power in that. And I feel such warmth, like I know you and it's like, There's so much more that we share as human beings than is different. You know, you and I come from very different worlds. I'm decades older than (laughs) you and, you know, different background, different everything. And yet I really feel the kind of heart connector between us. And that is what we want more people to have, isn't it really? By and it's That's from your it. honesty that I could open to you because you opened to me from your heart. And that feels so powerful and I'm so grateful. Thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> now listeners, it's that time of the show that many of you eagerly anticipate each week. The moment when I'm joined by my two incredible psychotherapist daughters. Emily who's a child psychotherapist and Sophie who's an adult psychotherapist. Let's hear what they have to say about today's enlightening conversation. I mean listening to Azaria was quite something, wasn't it? What what did you take away from it? I mean, I was just
2: blown away by her courage, I think. <laughs> the whole way through I just felt quite in awe. I think the courage with which she faced into her reality, both of what she'd experienced but also what she had taken responsibility for. You know, I had a moment where I thought, you know, am I gonna be as brave as her when my children come to me and say, What about this? And what about this? And I remember this and You've you, done this. Yeah. I think she did something like, I see you and yes, you know, that's what's happened and I'm so sorry. And I'm gonna be here. And I was just like, I hope
0: I can do that too for my children. The way she said, I am more resilient, and you know, everyone heard how she had to kind of deal with herself first before mm. she could even begin to parent. But she the when she said, but the facts remain the same. I've had four mm. children and I parent two. That she's the courage is facing the reality of the consequences of what
1: happened Absolutely. to her. And a
0: lot of what happened to her wasn't was more systemic, wasn't really down to her, but she is Taking responsibility. And I was thinking it in a more kind of general point that for the people around us, when we damage them, like you imagining your future children or what I have with you, being able to acknowledge and kind of be accountable for our part in what went wrong, I think is an enormous step to a bridge of healing. And I think we can only do that
2: if we're compassionate towards ourselves and recognize the parts that were not in our control that that were just part where the system or was what we couldn't stop at the time I think it's very hard to take responsibility without a good strong sense of self compassion
1: Yeah I mean I think she really faced the pain and in doing so she was able to change the story for herself but she also changed the story for her children too, because her children actually do have a new narrative, both the ones that she parents and the ones that she doesn't parent. And though it's not your sort of picture perfect nuclear family, these children are being given a way of understanding their experience and supported by their caregivers in that, both their primary caregivers and their biological caregivers. And the reality is no one has this sort of picture perfect Mm. childhood. And really what children need is supportive, safe adults to help them understand and feel safe in their experience. And that is what she is giving them, both to the children that she parents and the ones that She doesn't parent, and it's a lot of credit to her, and it's also a lot of credit to the people who are taking care of um, her other two biological children that she's not with all of the time, because it actually takes quite a lot of capacity and compromise, and really being able to put your children first to be able to navigate that relationship between biological children, adoptive children. It's it's a very complicated and difficult thing to do because often for the things that it provokes for us internally and it sounds really amazing and I'm sure not without its challenges and complications but that they have managed to find a way to to prioritize the children's experience and therefore she's given them something different than she was ever given herself
2: Yes, it's sort of what in therapy we call a cycle breaker, isn't it? You know, when you break that cycle of intergenerational trauma. And I I thought one of the huge values of, you know, when we do a podcast like this, it's the, the realness of the story. So I thought, you know, we so often live with black and white stories with headlines of good people and bad people. And to have a story that she was so generous to share and the honesty of it, it really creates the sort of um, you know, how how victims become perpetrators, how compassion for how that cycle happens, for how it isn't black and white of like goodies and baddies. And um that when you do face into the pain, as Emily described, it's it is ultimately freeing as hard work as it is.
1: If you if it's supported. I don't think you can do it by yourself,
0: right? No, you can never do it alone.
1: Yeah. So I have worked for a very long time with children who have been removed from their parents, who are sort of often in limbo. And what I have heard so many times, and what I also heard her say is that when I was a child, no one noticed me. (laughs) No one noticed that I was suffering and in pain and not being given what I needed. And now I have children, suddenly the system is like, you're a bad parent, you're not giving your children what Mm. you need. It is incredibly sort of impossible to feel trust or respect for a system that never cared about you in the first place. And I think, you know, that's a really complicated dynamic. And it was only when she got this social worker Jackie. who really actually listened and said, you know, you also failed.
0: The system can be incredibly judgmental, like you're doing it wrong, you've got to do it right, you've got to stop taking drugs, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. And it wasn't until someone saw her, and I think all of us, as a unique individual who really paid attention and examined her story and saw the roots of where she came from, being seen, and I think that's true for all of us, when you feel seen as you see yourself, and you, then you can begin to build trust that enables you to be build trust in yourself, and then you have the capacity, or some of the capacity, to to bear the pain.
2: Yes, and when I remember once it was really powerful. I was in a talk uh, with a judge who set up something called the Family Drugs and Alcohol Court, and he was saying when he removed the thirteenth child from the same mother, he went, "There oh, is something goodness. we are not doing right that this." System does this. this can't be right what we're doing here, and you set up this thing called the Family Drugs and Alcohol Court, where essentially the court gives them a support worker and they work towards a goal alongside the parent. So they set a goal together, they say you know then they come back in after a certain number of months, how are we doing? Have we been able to achieve it? And more often than not, the decision is a mutual decision. so the parent either decides they're right, they're not able to care for their children at this time. And the child goes into care, or they decide it is possible, and they try and set up a system where that's more possible. And that sort of collaborative approach, where the parent actually is involved in the decision making, and therefore doesn't just have baby after baby after baby. Because I remember the boy said the mother shouted at him, "I'm going to have a baby every single year until you let me keep one." Um,
0: oh, yes, you can see that. Yeah, I get so that. It, it sort of
2: ended up being a sort of it, this wasn't a process that had any kind of
1: helpful outcome for anybody uh and i and i think they've rolled that out but but within that so if, i guess my question would be do they also help the child in that process
2: yes i don't know what the full there's a an fdac worker a family drugs and alcohol worker who works with the parent i assume the children are in whatever form of care that they need to be at the time i don't know what the full uh you know system is how system. it's set up but yes you would hope that too you
1: so, I'm trained in a type of therapy called child parent psychotherapy, um, which is um, designed for young children under the age of five who've experienced trauma, uh, which obviously removal from your parent at whatever age is a trauma. And part of that, the very beginning part actually, is sort of creating this triangle narrative for the child and you have the parent, you sort of work on it with the parents, you develop it with the parents and then it depends on the age of the child. But even for babies, part of the work is to have the parent or the primary caregiver give a narrative to the child. So even if you have a six month old baby, you have the parent say to the child, this is what happened. and. These are the things that I think maybe you felt when this happened, that maybe it was very scary for you when X, Y, Z happened. And these are the things that we're going to do now. And these are the ways that we are going to keep you safe. However old the child is, you kind of are setting that foundation of a narrative of like, exactly as Azaria said, like, this is the reality. These are the things that happened. And then kind of acknowledging the feelings part, like, you probably didn't have any words, but this is how I think you might have felt. And then the sort of safety part, like this is what I did at the time to try and keep you safe. And this is what we are doing now to make sure that you are safe. And I think that that is so foundational to any child who's experienced trauma, is to kind of have that way that their primary caregivers are kind of making sense of it for them.
0: Well, I would extend that to all of us, adults and children need to have a narrative and that our narrative is understood and heard by other people's narratives. So my experience of my narrative and what I felt and what I believe happened and then what I'm going to do with it is recognized and heard by other people because we're social beings, right? So we need our version of ourselves to be seen and heard by other people. Otherwise, we feel a bit mad. Is that right?
2: Yes, I think and I think what we know, don't we, through research is how well we recover from a traumatic event is highly correlated with how well we are supported at the time that it happens. You know, we can process something in relationship, can't we? That it's and it's very hard to process it when we're left alone with it. And with no one to witness to help us make that narrative.
1: I also thought when I was listening to her um about how sometimes how we find our vocation in life has a lot to do with what we wish that we had and mm-hmm. how kind of beautiful it was that in her advocacy role um, and her educational role that she has now in, in her professional career, she's sort of saving herself a little bit. <laughs> that it, it's It's like a sort of way of saying, like, I wish that I had this and so I'm going to give this to somebody else. And I think so often that's how we find jobs or voluntary work or whatever it is, if it's not something that we are able to do as a full-time job that kind of give our lives meaning by kind of giving ourselves something that we wish we had maybe had.
0: I often think about it for myself, but other people in any helping profession is that often what we end up doing for others is what we most wanted for ourselves.
1: What does it mean that we're all therapists then? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm a child therapist. I know. Dun, dun, dun.
2: God. Oh my God. Um. The only thing it made, the other thing it made me think about more as a therapist was When she was talking about Jackie, I was thinking how hard it can be as a therapist to hold the power of our role, because on the one hand, you can be the Jackie, you can be this sort of turning point sometimes, occasionally in someone's life, if everything aligns. I'm also so often aware in my clients' lives that I'm a sort of 2% of a 98% pie. I'm one hour a week, and that the other factors in their life, particularly I found when I've worked if someone is in a more chaotic situation, then there is a bigger external factors that can completely wipe out potentially what's happening in the therapeutic space. Is On the one hand, it can feel like this enormous responsibility. And on this other hand, sometimes you can feel like you're so powerless and it's, you could never quite know the role you are playing in someone's narrative. And that's sort of how to hold the responsibility of, of that in the right place, not being overwhelmed, but
0: also not undervaluing it as a note to end on. And I think that's for all of us listening, not just for therapists. I think we often underestimate the value of good quality, uh, sound relationships. Thank you, Emily and Sophie. Thank you, everyone for listening. But in particular, thank you to Azaria for being so honest and speaking to us and letting us have a kind of Uh, experience of her world that I think is profound for all of us so I'm going to put a link in the show notes to Azaria's work and what she's doing for those of you that want to find it if you think this is an episode that would help a friend or a family member do share it and do rate and subscribe so that others can find us easily thank you very much